This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, could President Erdogan broker a peace deal between Putin and the West? Plus, a look at Tina, the drug devastating the gay community. And finally, are the Oscars losing their relevance? First up, for this week's cover story, Owen Matthews has written about how Turkey's President Erdogan became a key power broker between Vladimir Putin and the Western alliance. Owen joins me now, along with Ed J. Temelkurin, a political thinker and author of How to Lose a Country. Owen, in your article, you say that Erdogan could be instrumental in resolving the Ukraine crisis. Why is he caught between the two sides? Uh, well, he, uh, he's been in in the halfway between East and West for pretty much his whole career. I mean, that's been major, Erdogan's major policy move um, right from the beginning of his career was actually to start to make friends with all of his neighbours, and uh, those include Russia. So, in fact, one of the major sources of friction between Erdogan and the West has not just been Erdogan's sort of deep suspicion of American hegemony, which is something that he shares with Putin, by the way, and his difficult um, relationship with Europe, but also his friendship with uh, with, with Putin has been ongoing. Um, it's been, uh, it was actually very strong, certainly in the 2000s, because during that period, Turkey uh, encouraged the building of two major gas pipelines from Turkey to Russia, which now uh, Erdogan and Turkey depends on for 30% of its uh, of its gas. So in that sense, Turkey is as dependent on Russia as it is, as Germany is, for instance. The Turks are building him at, uh, several nuclear power stations, and uh, Erdogan has described himself as a, as a friend to Putin. Now, that relationship has uh, been rather rocky since the beginning of the Syrian war, and particularly, in fact, a little bit before that, since the annexation of Crimea, which uh, Putin, which Erdogan, in fact, uh, condemned. But um, uh, Erdogan's been in a position of being friendly and uh, with both the West and with Russia for some decades now. And, Edja, how has this invasion affected Turkey? I mean, what do you think the general view is among the Turkish people about the Ukrainian war? Mm. Uh, first, a uh, bit about uh, what uh, Orban told, uh, talked about, because it feels like a lifetime ago now, but when Erdogan came to power, he was the exemplary leader for the Middle East. It was right after 9-11 and he was supposed to be the bridge between East and West Christians and the Muslims. So it was like the Turkish democracy was going to be the model for the rest of the Middle East in terms of, in terms of democracy, but that honeymoon didn't last long. Uh, the plans for being uh, friends with uh, neighbours, zero problems policy, uh, boiled down to zero neighbours reality <laughs> in quite a short time, actually, especially with Syria, as Owen said. Erdogan has been trying to change uh, Turkey's position, uh, at least metaphorically, in, ter- uh, in the world, uh, because when we were growing up, there was this map in our elementary schools, we were seeing West as the colorful, 
uh, place that we all have to look at. That was uh, the ideology of the establishment from the very beginning, from 1923. But then Erdogan shifted our focus or tried to shift the Turkey's focus to Middle East. So he was almost trying to heal an inferiority syndrome in Turkey towards West, uh, West uh, with a superiority syndrome towards the East. But at the end, we had no neighbors that we get along together with in a good way. And Russia has been particularly rocky and Putin being Putin made Erdogan wait uh, at the door, I think uh, more than one time actually even. So yeah, uh, but now there's the war. Part of the people, ordinary people who do not, you know, who are not interested in the international geopolitics of it, uh, are of course concerned about their natural gas bills. Uh, Turkey is already going through a massive economic crisis. Starvation has become an issue lately. And now there's this natural gas issue. But other than that, I think uh, having been through all these dramatic problems, horrible problems in Turkey, people got used to being at the center of all the shitty positions in the world. I mean, like, it's Venezuela, uh, drug problems, and then Turkey is there suddenly. And now it's Ukraine and Turkey is at the center of it. Of course, there is the fact that we hold uh, this Montreux Convention. Uh, Article 19 in Montreux Convention says that passage through the Turkish Straits should be granted to military vessels, you know, under they had to take permission from Turkey and Turkey called the invasion of Ukraine a war. So now Turkey holds that authority to allow or not to allow uh, Russian uh, battleships. So this is one of the important things that might cause a problem with Russia. And I think many people, not only the ordinary people concerned about natural gas, but people who know a little bit about international politics are very afraid that this war prolongs and then we end up talking about how we are going to apply Montreux Convention. And Owen, uh, you wrote in your piece that Washington badly needs to reunite the NATO family against Russia and that so far Erdogan has, has been hedging his, his bets uh, strategically. But how long can he continue to, to play these both sides and, and uh, what could Washington do perhaps to try to ensure a, a greater NATO commitment from Turkey? Uh, well, I think Erdogan has no choice. Um, he, he, has to, he has to play both sides forever. Um, the, the, he can't turn his back on Russia. Um, the Russian tourism, uh, Russia was a mainstay of tourism. Um, it was 13% of GDP. It's enormously important. There was a, there was a major breakdown when the Turks shot down a, uh, a Russian fighter jet uh, seven years ago, and there was actually a ban of Russia on Russian tourism that severely impacted the economy. You've got gas, you've got tourism. Uh, but also, importantly, Erdogan's actually been building up a lot of economic ties with Ukraine, so uh, he's actually been very keen to make sure that two of his major trading partners have uh, reached some kind of uh, agreement as fast as possible, which is w- one of the reasons why he has, has been so active as a mediator. At the same time, uh, what do the Americans want from him? There has been an idea floated reportedly last week that um, the uh, American Deputy Secretary of State was in Ankara to float an idea that Erdogan should give 
a, a very sophisticated Russian air defense system called an S-400, which they bought from Erdogan in 2017, should give that to the Ukrainians. I mean, frankly, that's a very big ask. I don't think Erdogan, I don't really see Erdogan actually doing that. But nonetheless, um, I think the, uh, as Eji Hanum said, um, there's actually a very important symbolic significance to that invoking of the Montreux Convention that actually, you know, it, it's it, practically, it's not in fact uh, very important to the Russian war effort because already Russia's Black Sea fleet is already largely deployed in the Black Sea. So what we're talking about is Russian ships from the Baltic fleet, from the Northern fleet, that happen to be in the Mediterranean and you know, may or may not want to pass through the Straits. But I mean, it's it's symbolic that Turkey has invoked that and sort of basically it's uh, it demonstrated symbolically what side it's on. To your question, what can America do to get Erdogan further on side? Um, I don't think they really need Erdogan further on side. What they need is somebody who who actually has an open channel to to the Russians. And in fact, Mevlut Chavushol, who is the foreign minister, said you know, very clearly that Putin's burned his bridges with everyone else. I, I, there's no one else to talk to. Therefore, actually, it's very useful to the West to have Erdogan as a middleman. However, there's a major problem, and that is that the phase that we're going into, the end game of the war, is going to center around one very simple, terrible paradox. That is, in order to withdraw... Putin has to be able to t- sell the war, the conflict, as some, the invasion as some kind of victory to his people, otherwise his regime is jeopardized. NATO and the West cannot allow that to happen. That's the paradox. You can't do both of those things. Er, where, where does Erdogan stand on this? As we've said, and, uh, and as Ejihanom has said, he's a man in a hurry. He wants to get this f- fixed as, possible, as fast as possible. Um, he rather like Xi Jinping, you know, prefers to have Putin in power than to have someone else in power, which is going to be economically and politically disruptive. So ultimately, I think Erdogan is going to start diverging from the NATO position because he's going to want to back some kind of face-saving solution for Putin, which uh, neither the Ukrainians nor, the, nor, nor, nor NATO are really prepared to allow. Erdogan is, is like Tito in Cold War. Um, I don't know if he's as skilled as Tito, but he, he has to improve his Tito skills uh, at, at least for a, for a while. But you're right, Putin has to sell this as a victory, and NATO wants to sell it as a victory as well, so it is a dilemma that's impossible dilemma. But I feel like <laughs> both sides are good at, you know repackaging the reality so that won't be a problem maybe at some point and and do you agree then with owen that perhaps some way down the the line of this erdogan is on course for a collision with nato allies over this if yeah as as owen said uh we have these deals especially for weapons for uh for these drones and stuff uh with ukraine and with russia uh there was this time i think it was during the syria crisis Putin said that we are not buying your pot- uh, tomato, and then that even that statement shook Turkish economy. And Turkish economy at the moment is very, very fragile, on the brink of collapse, actually. So yes, uh, he might not be able to hold the NATO position qu- for a long time. So Owen, in terms of Erdogan's political survival, he has these uh, elections coming up in in twenty twenty three. Do you think that his role as this this middleman? is a very useful position for him to be in, in terms of uh, ensuring his, his political survival. Well, uh, it's, it's very clear. I mean, that he needs to keep cheap Russian gas flowing and he needs to keep to, uh, from, from Russia 
to Turkey and he needs to keep the tomatoes flowing from Turkey to Russia. It's very simple. Uh, he cannot afford, in the most literal sense, to make an enemy of Putin. And, uh, Ezra, you, you were sacked from your job as a journalist under Erdogan's crackdown of the press uh, in Turkey. So I wonder, actually, um, if you see similarities now between Putin and Erdogan, given what we've read in the, and seen in the press over the last few weeks about the crackdown in press freedoms uh, within Russia. Well, one of the big differences between them are one of them is uh, better educated uh, on several levels, um, and that's Putin, obviously. Yeah, uh, they are quite similar, and I think Erdogan is learning from Putin a lot. And in terms of elections, you know, we are all <laughs> holding our breath for elections. Uh, but then authoritarian leaders, especially right-wing populist leaders such as Erdogan, and after 20 years, creating a generation of their own, they don't care about the reality so much. I mean, like, it's not their concern, actually, what the reality, the economic realities, uh, because they can keep on selling the lies that they manufacture through the media that they created. Uh, so f f at the moment, for instance, I am sure that uh, Erdogan is selling this being the peace mediator as one of his favorite uh, titles, the world leader. So I think he would uh, politically capitalize on this as well, even whatever the outcome is. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Edja. Next up, in this week's issue, Dr. Max Pemberton has written about Tina, a dangerous drug often used at chemsex parties, which is devastating the gay community. Max joins me now, along with Philip Hurd, a chemsex rehabilitation professional and trustee of Controlling Chemsex. Max, firstly, what exactly is chemsex for those listeners who have never heard of it? So chemsex is, is a term used to describe, well, it's used quite widely, I think, in the gay community to describe a combination of, of kind of having typically quite sort of like group sex but alongside a number of different drugs, sort of, uh, they tend to be kind of what we might class as sort of uppers. So things like, as we're talking about today, Tina or crystal meth, but then it tends not to be used just on its own. Sometimes it is, but it tends to be used with other drugs. So things like mephedrone, which was a legal high some time ago, which now has been banned, but it's still quite popular. Things like G, um, GHB, which is um, like a clear liquid, which uh, sort of produces like a sense of euphoria, but also is, a, is ultimately a, a depressant um, and is actually hugely dangerous, particularly when combined with alcohol. And then often people will add in things like Viagra because all of these drugs uh, have an impact or can have an impact on sexual function. So you get this kind of like combination of, of different drugs, this kind of cocktail that people use. Uh, but kind of, certainly from my experience, at the centre of this tends to be Tina or crystal meth. And uh, why is Tina used in particular for, for, for these parties? And, and what are some of the long-term effects of use of Tina? So Tina, Tina, I, I think is used, I'm sure Philip will be able to tell us even more about this. From, from my experience, both clinically and also kind of within my friendship group, Tina has, is, is, it produces incredibly intense highs and sense of euphoria 
it uh, makes you very sort of alert. It's a, it's a, it's very, it's a very sort of uh, stimulant drug, but also it gives this really in, uh, kind of extraordinary sort of sexual appetite. So it sort of sits there, it makes people feel confident, um, it makes people feel euphoric, and it also makes people, to, uh, makes people feel uh, really horny. So that tends to then sort of sit in the centre of this chemsex scene, and then, and then people tend to use other drugs to uh, sort of either augment in some way those feelings, or kind of manage the side effects uh, of Tina. Because actually Tina, even though it's got these kind of apparently positive uh, aspects to it, they come at a really considerable cost. So sort of like long-term use, it's, it's incredibly addictive. Um, so people become uh, very reliant on it and need to often use more and more to get the same effect. And it has a very significant impact on people's physical health. Um, so uh, it can produce things like seizures and heart attacks, strokes. It raises your body temperature. Uh, sort of difficulty breathing, kidney failure, and so on. Um, and it also has a very significant psychiatric sort of mental health effect. So people can become very agitated. Uh, they can become very depressed, particularly after uh, using it. So it's kind of come down. Um, and it can also trigger psychosis. So sort of like a loosening of kind of your, your ideas around reality. And Philip, you are a chemsex rehabilitation professional and a trustee of the, the charity Controlling Chemsex. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the work you do, and perhaps a bit about uh, your your journey to get to where you are? Yes. So first of all, I, I do agree completely with Max about this, and just wanted to say further with Tina that you know gay men have historically suffered with terrible self esteem issues, and um, Tina makes you feel invincible, and also it, you you can party and sex have sex for up to 72 hours without sleeping. So these are seen, a bit like, as Max says, seen as positives, but massively destructive. Into rehabilitation, I've been clean, if you, want, if you like that term, or non-using for nine years, and I decided to go into volunteering in Chemsex. Because again, a bit like AIDS, which Max mentions in his article, we're on our own as gay men. The, the society government does nothing knows nothing so we have to look after our our own so i i volunteer at three charities and one of those is the nhs where i'm a specialist advisor and philip is tina a more recent addition to the to the chemsex scene is and is that something which which uh which is causing more problems for your charity yes so when i managed to come off chemsex uh nine years ago Methadrone was probably the big one. As Max says, it was completely legal. As GHB was completely legal, you could just go online and order it. <laughs> Mind you, you still can with all these drugs. So, yes. Um, sorry. Yeah. And um, what are some of the effects that you've witnessed then in your charity from, from people who have been using Tina and, or even other chemsex drugs in the time you've been working for the charity? Yes, yeah, so methadrone, G, ketamine, they're all pretty dangerous, but Tina, in my opinion, is in a class of its own. And I've been, I've been in rehabilitation now for six years, helping hundreds of guys. And you see a pattern. Typically, first the guy loses his partner, his boyfriend, uh, then the job, then his house, and then his mind and even his life. Uh, that order might change, but we're working at that level. Hmm. Uh, it's absolutely desperate. And... Um, also, people have nowhere to go. They don't go to the police, I would say, ever. 
because they are engaged in illegal activity. And also we don't feel necessarily that we'll be taken seriously. Mm. So we have to provide these clinics, these, this key work, this support. I was going to say, because I would echo what Philip is saying, that you know, I've seen, seen it professionally, so I see people, so I work in a and um, covering mental health, so I see people like in crisis coming in acutely psychotic, particularly working in central London, I see that quite a lot. But then I've also had very personal experiences of that kind of witnessing some very dear friends kind of go through that journey. And the thing that I was trying to write about in the piece is that it's, it tends to be something that people initially try, from my experience, tend to be, they, they tend to maybe sort of dabble in it a bit. And then something happens, whatever that might be. Either they lose a partner or, you know, they split up from somebody or they lose their job or, some, or they get very, have a very stressful time at work. And then suddenly the kind of dabbling in it on a Friday night suddenly becomes now they're through onto Saturday and then suddenly it's Sunday and then it's like leached into the next week and then there's sort of, you know, the pot and performance monitoring at work and then they lose their job and then it's just spirals and spirals and spirals. And the sad thing is because it's a very, I, I find it a very isolating drug so that actually then you start losing your usual friendship group of people who don't use and you start only associating with people that do use. And I had one of my very dear friends, actually, who's I feel we've kind of sort of emotionally like lost to this drug because he's still using it now. I remember talking to him about it and him saying, yeah, but, you know, you look on something like Grindr and everybody's doing it. And I was saying to him, but that's not true. You look at, it's only because you're looking for those people. You see them. But actually, when I go on Grindr, I don't see those people because I immediately dis- discard them because I'm not interested in that scene. And it's really sad to kind of, you literally watch these people kind of drifting away. And a lot, you realise that really a lot of them, it seems to me, certainly both professionally and personally, a lot of them are kind of basically self-medicating pain, much in a similar way, maybe to kind of 30 years ago, people were doing things like heroin. And I think within the gay community, sort of Tina has taken over or or taken the the role that maybe kind of alcohol um, and things like heroin have done previously, historically, um, in straight communities as a way of managing people, people managing kind of acute emotional distress as well as kind of like senses of shame and inadequacy and so on that may come with, come with also with being gay. Yes, and I'd just like to carry on from that, that of course when you self-medicate with something like Tina to overcome your feelings of anxiety or low self-esteem or whatever it is, you're actually making it much, much worse. So, you know, two or three days later, you'd have this massive come down and the, the need for this self-medication becomes even greater. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, Philip, how were you able to get clean nine years ago? Um, no, um, I haven't actually shared this very much, but um, I had a, a massive overdose. Uh, typically, what happens in these chemsex parties is, you know, you're scrolling down on your phone, a guy comes over, another guy comes over, you go to another party, so, and each person may, may be bring, bringing different drugs, or, and it all gets a bit messed up. You're supposed to t- time very carefully. Um, and I was being administered drugs by this chap and um, overdosed and nearly died. And my parents had to come down from Hertfordshire. They're in their 80s, and the doctors told them this. And it's not... I realised it was not where I wanted to be. And I actually stopped that day. But I have w- I've found out that this is very unusual. 
and that actually needs a great deal of support and a great deal of attention for most people. So, Philip, actually, just to just to end, I'm afraid because we, we're running out of time, but uh, perhaps for anyone listening to this who has a family or uh, a family member or a friend who's who's been caught up with these sorts of issues, I mean, what what do you think is the best advice you could give on how to help them? Um, that is, that is a big question. I, I kind of echo Max's implication that it is, this is very, very difficult to help people. People become isolated. They self-isolate. Friends and family feel uh, rejected and pushed away. But we have to get people to find help. We have um, a charity controlling chemsex. It's currently online, but we're looking for clinics. Unfortunately, some of the clinics have closed their real-life service because of the pandemic, but you must, must get support. Uh, there's also the, the GP and, and local drug, drug services. Uh, basic, I, I know I said I did it, but basically you can't do it on your own. Well, uh, Philip and Max, thank you very much. And finally, Toby Young writes for The Spectator this week about the Oscars ceremony. John Ringo once coined the term get woke and go broke to describe businesses that drive consumers away with their politically worthy causes. Could the same be said for the Oscars? Toby joins me now, along with Fiona Mountford, a film and theatre critic and a spectator contributor. Toby, you write in your column this week about this Sunday's Oscars. Why do you think the viewing figures have been falling over the years? Well, they've fallen um, steadily over the years, but they've fallen precipitously between 2020 and 2021. So in 2020, the Oscars got 23.6 million viewers in the US. And in 2021, they got 10.4. And that was, people think, the hope, I think, on the part of the Oscar producers, is that that precipitous fall of more than half was due to the fact that there was no presenter last year. It wasn't a live event in an auditorium. It was held at the Los Angeles train station, and there was a, a, and it was it was a much reduced, anemic Oscars because of the pandemic. And they're hoping that um, with an in-person event in an auditorium this year and various bells and whistles that have been introduced, uh, that they'll get it back up. But if they can't get it back up to above 23.6 million, which was still an all-time low at that time, and that was in 2020, then I think the Oscars will be in real trouble and um, it may be the end of the Oscars as we know it. Well, and Fiona, you wrote a piece last year for the magazine about uh, how listless the film awards season was uh, because of the pandemic, as, as Toby has just mentioned. Do you think that now the COVID restrictions have lifted and they have presenters again this year that that this is the time the Oscars can bounce back? Yes, I mean, I think last year was in every sense an all-time low because let us not forget cinemas worldwide had basically been shut for most of the year. A lot of films hadn't been released. The films that were nominated were on streaming Nomadland, which one was released in the UK on Disney+. Plus. It was an out-of-time experience last year. So I think they can bounce back. But I agree with Toby, there is a problem. Award ceremonies, BAFTAs have got a problem as well. And I think the issue is that they are becoming so unreflective of mainstream opinion. Now, whether that's right or wrong is another issue, because let us not forget that the most popular and the best 
are very often not the same thing. I mean, the Da Vinci Code was published in 2003. It was enormously popular. I think we can probably agree it wasn't the best book of the year. And this is the issue. Film ceremonies are awarding films that are not generally being viewed in large numbers. Therefore, there's not the great popular tuning in to see whether their favourites will win. So that's an issue. I, in the piece I wrote for The Spectator a couple of weeks ago, the BAFTAs, which were two weeks ago, had a real lack of glitzy names. They, the only two glitzy names they managed to, to attract in the auditorium were Benedict Cumberbatch and Lady Gaga, both of whom didn't win. So this is the issue. I think the general public feel quite disconnected from what's being nominated and what's being rewarded in the end. So what do you, how do you feel about the introduction of this new fan favourite category that's voted on by Twitter users? Do you think that, will, that could help bring in more viewers or do you think that's a, a, sort of a dumbing down of the ceremony in, in any way? I don't think that's going to be the thing that salvages the Oscars, really, a fan favourite category. I mean, I, don't, I think, it, obviously, it's a way so they can, as Toby says in his piece, it's a way to include the films that people might actually have seen in their millions rather than the films that are nominated, some of which are very good, some of which are Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, that people might not have seen in their millions. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, clearly, the introduction of this fan favourite category is to give the producers of the Oscars a pretext to show clips from Spider-Man No Way Home, Venom Let There Be Carnage, No Time to Die, none of which have been nominated for Oscars in any of the major categories. So this is a way both to give them an excuse to show clips from those films and to get some of the stars of those films along. Uh, but the problem is it's all gone wrong already because um, they're doing this fan favourite thing in partnership with Twitter. And Twitter has allowed each Twitter user to vote up to 20 times per day, which creates a kind of, it's like a gold embossed invitation to kind of demented fans to gain this particular vote. And they've already done that. So Johnny Depp fans have already made sure that on the shortlist for fan favourite, and it'll be decided during the telecast via Twitter, but on the shortlist, the film Minamata has already been included. That's Johnny Depp's latest release. It hasn't been seen by almost anyone, but clearly... Uh, it's not only, I think, demented fans of Johnny Depp wanting him to get a look in, um, but it's also, I think, a rebuke to the kind of cancel culture that's all pervasive in Hollywood now. Because Johnny Depp has been cancelled after being accused by his now ex-wife, Amber Head, of assaulting her, uh, he's effectively been dropped from everything. He can't get, you know, he can't get into a restaurant now in Hollywood. So, so this is kind of a, a backlash against cancel culture. And I think um, in addition to the trend Fiona's identified, which is, um, you know, the films which get honoured at the Oscars are increasingly obscure art house films, which no one has actually seen. So why would anyone watch it? Uh, in addition to that, the Oscars is becoming increasingly woke. And I think there is a real disconnect between, you know, the, the popular television audience and the values of these kind of elite Hollywood limousine liberals. You know, they're there to advertise that they are taking up uh, the correct kind of orthodox position on kind of identitarian issues, sex, gender, race. Uh, and and, and the, the viewers have, yeah, first of all, no interest in their opinion on these subjects. But insofar as they register those opinions, they're completely at odds with the kind of mainstream audience's views. I think the issue that's facing all awards ceremonies in the last couple of years in the wake of Me Too, Black Lives Matter, I think the issue is, and let us, sorry, before I tell you what I think the issue is, let us not forget 
that until about three years ago, the main awards in the Oscars and the BAFTAs, the shortlists for the awards, year in, year out, were an all-male, all-white affair. It was just so taken for granted, it barely even merited comment. So last year, a woman won Best Director. She's the second woman in 93 years. I think we can agree that is quite bizarre. So obviously these awards want to expand, need to expand, because women, last time I checked, made up about 50% of the world's population. So I think we all, as culture lovers and so on, agree we want these ceremonies to reward the best. We don't want them to re reward, I'm sure Toby wants them to reward the best. I do. We don't want them to re reward the most mediocre, the most middle of the road. But here's the crux of the matter. Who is the arbiter of the best? And I think of this as analogous to that time when there were all female constituency shortlists for MPs and there was all the debate around that. And people said, we just want to pick the best. Of course we do. But the issue is that the best always in every sphere tends to be more of what we've had before unless there's a conscious shake-up. And that's what the BAFTAs and the Oscars have been doing. And yes, I think possibly they some correction was needed to the status quo of three, four years ago. I think we can argue now it swung too far the other way and that some correction will happen and it will settle somewhere in the middle. But a, a dramatic swing away from all male, all white, it had to happen. And the idea that it took till the... 2018-2019 is incredible. I remember doing a piece about this, Fiona, for The Spectator and looking when there was the um, the Oscars all white hashtag was trending. I think it was in 2018. And there was a kind of uh, complaint which was felt to be completely valid, which was that not enough black artists had received Oscars and that something needed to be done about that. And I remember looking at um, the percentage of black award winners in the acting categories and comparing them to the percentage of black actors cast in leading roles, so likely to be nominated for Oscars. And actually, it was pretty in proportion. So something like, you know, 10% of leading roles have been played by black actors and about 10% of awards over the past 25 yes, years has gone to... Issue, but... isn't it? If you can see it, you can be it. If you don't, that, then that's the issue with women, isn't it? If no, no women get to direct films, they're not going to win these prizes. It's, it's flagging up something that's far more systemic than, than Oscar voters being racist or being sexist. I don't think anyone's saying they were going, I'm not going to pick the person of colour or the woman. If these people weren't available to be picked, that's the issue. Yes, I agree. Um, but 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 the accusation at that time, and the accusation even now, is that the members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the members of BAFTA, were themselves biased. And I'm actually a BAFTA member. And um, in the past year, we've been deluged with kind of offers of online diversity training of various kinds, because the, the assumption is that it's sort of, even if it's not a conscious act of discrimination on the part of the kind of uh, electorate, these internal electorates, Electorates, uh, it's unconscious and that needs to be addressed. Whereas actually, if you look at the evidence, the issue is, as you say, systemic inequalities within those industries, not bias on the part of the um, electorates. And the BAFTA has, well, as you know, I, as, as Toby will know, BAFTA has done a lot to, to change the, the voting, the voting credentials and to change the nominees and so on. And I think I'm right in saying in the BAFTA, best director, it now has to be 50-50 split between men and women nominees. And I don't think anyone 
I've seen all of the nominees and I don't think anyone can disagree that some of them are sort of slightly more deserving than others. But I guess with all major changes, you have to start somewhere. Just finally, uh, I'd like to ask both of you, if you were in charge of the Oscars, who would you ask to host the evening? I think it should be um, me and James Dellingpole, oh, Will. I think that would, that would set the cat amongst the pigeons. That would create a lot of uh, clips on social media that would go viral. Well, I mean, one, of my, one, of my, one of my suggestions in my uh, column this week is that the mu- some of the musical numbers should be performed by Dominic Frisbee. He's got this great song called, I think, The Maybe Song. And one of the lines is, you know, after setting out the kind of case against Donald Trump, he then goes but maybe Donald Trump is not so bad. And the look on Francis McDormand's face uh, when Dominic Frisbee sings that line, that, now that is something I'd stay up until four o'clock in the morning. I'm uh, not entirely see. certain that the American, great American viewing public will, be, will know who Dominic Frisbee or indeed Francis McDormand actually are. So I fear that might not be the solution. I think Stephen Fry should host everything. He is a long-term host of the BAFTAs. He was elegant. He was erudite. He was witty. He was really excellent and it was it was a wonderful showcase for the BAFTAs. And because he's a white man, he can't do that anymore because that's not who can host awards ceremonies, rightly or wrongly. So I think the Oscars should sweep in and take Stephen Fry. Just in all seriousness, I don't think it should really be me and James. And I don't suppose Dominic for a second will, will get the call up. But um, I think the <laughs> ideal person would be Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais did a, an absolutely standout job as the host of the Golden Globes in which he just roasted everyone in the audience, exposed their hypocrisy. That was a kind of all-out, full-frontal assault on Hollywood's kind of woke, hypocritical, self-congratulatory, preening, virtue-signalling culture. And it was brilliant. And all of those clips went completely viral, had a huge afterlife on social media. So if they had balls, they'd get Ricky Gervais to host it. Can I just say, by Toby and I do agree on one thing. When In Toby's piece this week, he says, he calls, says the Oscars will inevitably be a snore feast of non-stop virtue-signalling. And in my piece about the BAFTAs from two weeks ago, I said it was the customary heady cocktail of self-absorption and virtue signalling. So I think we do agree on that. Thank you, Toby, and thank you, Fiona. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we've discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore, and do join us again next week.